another episode of the Cutest View podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm Bob. And we have a very special guest today. It is one of the hottest miniseries slash docuseries on Netflix right now. We have Mr. Phil Burleson. He is one of the producers and one of the executives uh, for this project. Phil, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So, so I, I kind of want to get into your story a little bit in the beginning here. So, so can you explain to us how you got into film and got into this industry? Uh, yeah, sure. I actually, um, you know, I, it's for lack of really not knowing how to do anything else. I, I started in, in, in high school radio, of all things. My high school had a radio station that I shared with another local township. We had the evening slot. They did the daytime slot. And it was really at that point I, I just got consumed by by media. Um, and by the time I was in college, I had discovered uh, video um, and looked into a viewfinder for the first time. And you know, I've been working in film and television ever since. I attended graduate film school at NYU, um, which kind of launched my career as a filmmaker. Um, and um, fell into documentary as a a way to tell stories because I was just fascinated by people's real life uh, more so than their fictional lives. And uh, and I also was a big student of history, so um, I just felt like I'd never been told the true history of our African-American lives and uh, kind of set about uh, examining that, not exclusively, but uh, largely. Uh, those are the stories that I tell. And uh, Who Killed Malcolm X is, is really the culmination of many histories that I've been telling about uh, African-American people. Um, and uh, Malcolm, you know, is, is, is a more significant figure, I think, than most give him credit for being. And the fact that his murder was uh, dealt with so cavalierly um, and really ended up being a miscarriage of justice, as we show in the series, um, we felt it was really uh, an opportune time to, to retell his story and to re-examine his death. Um, and uh, fortunately enough, people have really responded to it, and the Manhattan DA's office has even responded to it by uh, deciding that they wanted to take another look at the case himself. So, um, we're really proud of that and uh, and hope that uh, it ends in the exoneration of, of one of the assassins or convicted assassins and by the name of Muhammad Aziz. But I'll try not to spoil it too much for those who haven't seen it yet. Uh, that's the short story. Okay, and Phil, um, if you could tell us a little bit about your team and their involvement in your projects. Sure. I, uh, I co-produced and co-directed alongside um, uh, Rachel Dretson, who, with her husband, has a company called Art Media. I've been producing television with them for, for some years now. Uh, and Rachel and I, this was our third historical documentary in collaboration. Um, and we, uh, we like to tell the history of, uh, uh, from both our perspectives, she's a, a Jewish woman, um, a black man, and we feel like together uh, our different perspectives puts a more honest 
light on the history itself. So um, it's a unique collaboration uh, that we're, we're really proud of. Um, and I have two producers that I work with, uh, both women, uh, Shayla Harris and Naila Sims, who did a lot of the, the legwork in reporting this story and uncovering eyewitnesses and, you know, never heard from before participants in that era um, and some participating in that crime um, or allegedly. <laughs> And uh, so it was a great team. Um, it was me and three women. We called ourselves the Core Four. Anyone who's a Yankee fan out there knows what that means. It was uh, it was uh, it was a really extraordinary experience with them. You have a great team. It makes everything a little easier, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so I Definitely. do want to tap into um, I do want to tap into your most recent project, which we're discussing today: Who Killed Malcolm X. So what inspired you to take on this project? Well, you know, as filmmakers, we're constantly batting around ideas about what's next and what stories to tell. And um, at the time, there had been a, a recently published uh, biography on Malcolm X, so Pulitzer Prize winning one, um, in fact, by uh, an author named Manning Marable. And in that book, Marable uh, puts together the crime in a way that, you know, few had done before him and even suggests that there was um, an, an assassin hiding in plain sight in nearby North New Jersey. Um, and we became consumed with this thought that, you know, not only did the wrong men go to jail possibly, but one of them, what ends up being uh, the, uh, the the man who fired the kill shot. He he was never even questioned, let alone arrested or convicted of the crime. And and so we went on a hunt for him. And it was just it was too um, too rich a tale for us to leave alone. So we we embarked on our research by getting uh, a historian, um, a citizen historian, really. Um, a man who at the time was a security guard at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., who happened to know more about this crime than anyone. Um, and he himself is credited in that biography by Manning Marable uh, with having provided him with the information about this, this uh, living, uh, unconvicted assassin. Um, and so we, uh, we joined forces with Abdul Rahman Mohammed, who uh, becomes our uh, citizen sleuth, if you will, uh, and takes us by the hand and takes us through this history and this crime. And, so, uh, so, so that was that was my next question for you, um, Brother Abdul Rahman Mohammed. How do you go about checking or, or fact checking some of the the evidence that he had found, and, and what was the conversation like? In, and putting this thing together, I'd, I'd imagine it was much like a story that you kind of had to tell from beginning to finish. So can you kind of walk us through that, how you met him and and, and how this thing kind of developed? Sure. Uh, as I say, we, we we met him when he was a security guard. He ended up, um, by the time the film was being produced and, and edited, uh, he was a, uh, a tour guide at Arlington National Cemetery. So he's a man who was a stu 
student of history himself, but you know, from a you know, kind of an everyman perspective. And you know, his research had been decades in the making, um, and a lot of it was just oral history and research that he was told, and little tidbits that he gathered through his, you know, his, uh, you know, his scholarship. Um, how we go about fact-checking it is simply to get another source. Um, I think in, as a documentarian, you, you're always concerned with, with the facts. And so we have a policy that if we make a statement um, and it's not a fact, or we don't know it to be a fact, it's an allegation. So you'll hear a lot of talk about alleged and you know believed to be and that kind of thing. But when it's a fact, it's a fact, and it's because we we found other sources to kind of back it up. Uh, we typically uh, go with a minimum of, of three sources to determine whether or not something is a fact. Um, and uh, with Rachman, it was just it was the same deal. Um, we were fortunate to have him. Um, we put a lot of original research in front of him, facts that he himself was not aware of. Um, so we were able, he was able, I should say, to discover details around this crime that he hadn't known, um, which makes it a real genuine journey. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of how we proceeded. It took us about two years to produce. Uh, and uh, I won't spoil it for the audience, but something occurs during the time that we're producing it that, you know, changes the course and direction of this of film and, and history, to be, to be quite honest. And right. Abdullah Rahman was there for every step of the way. And so uh, in the series, each episode brings different sources and showing what could have been the cause of Malcolm X's assassination. Um, so why was it so important to project all these different possible scenarios? Well, you know, when you're dealing with a history that has many different versions, in order to get to the truth, you have to give each one of the the versions their own day in court, so to speak. Um, and it's it's a way of getting to a deeper truth rather than just accepting something as fact. Um, and so the series is structured in such a way where we lay out the details of the crime. We take time to get into certain aspects of Malcolm's biography and history, um, the Nation of Islam, to which he belonged, becomes a central part of the narrative. And there are many different views on what that meant to Malcolm and, and what their um, relationship, by them I mean him and, and their leader, Elijah Muhammad, um, so there's a lot to un uncover when you're, you're going to make certain charges um, because a lot of people have very, um, uh, should we say, intimate relationships with the history, and you want to make sure you, you you know you respect that, and you're making sure everyone's point of view is um, is given their given a hearing, um, and then, so that's why we have all these intersecting narratives because. You know, we all have different views and opinions about things, even though we experience the same thing. Um, we're all in quarantine right now, but you know, yeah, ten different people about what their life like is in quarantine, and 
and they'll tell you 10 different stories. And so that's right. kind of similar to, to this particular history. And Phil, now I know that uh, you had the opportunity to, to meet uh, Brother Malcolm's family. Can you explain what that experience was like and if they were involved in, in any type of way with this project? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that that had to be one of one of the highlights for me. Um, you know, Brother Malcolm had five uh, daughters, um, and uh, three while he was alive, and twins um, in his pregnant wife Betty when he died. Um, and these five women have five different views of his life, his legacy, um, it's often very challenging to get siblings, um, let alone, you know, descendants of historical figures to agree on anything. But uh, we were able to um, build a relationship with Ilyasa Shabazz, who appears in the film, who um, I interviewed for the film, and who showed a great deal of support for the series once it was produced. I think she felt it was um, it was a true representation of her father and a revelatory representation of um, his murder. Um, and I think she admittedly learned things that she herself didn't know and has been a kind of full-on um, endorser of the series. She's gone from screening to screening with us when we were in public screenings and um you know and, and really it made a very satisfying statement once to say that it was one of the few times that she and her sisters agreed on anything and, and then that was that this film was was remarkable and significant to them and their father's legacy so we were we were very pleased by that and i, I also want to ask you about you know the without giving too much of the series away to our listeners um because we definitely want them to check it out if they haven't already um, for Malcolm X's uh, assassination, um, there were men that did spend some time, or a lot of time, uh, in jail for this crime. Um, can you kind of speak about what it was like speaking with them and also having to tell their story alongside of uh, Brother Malcolm's? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, was uh, a, a tremendous um, surprise um, and in the end honor for us was to tell the story of uh, Muhammad Aziz. He uh, was formerly known as Norman Butler, Norman III ex-Butler when he was in the Nation of Islam and he was a you know a member of the Fruit of Islam who was you know technically a, a foot soldier uh, and, uh, and uh, he was wrongly convicted of the crime or at least he maintains his innocence after spending 20 years in jail for this crime. He was, at the time we met him, um, turning a, turning 80, looking no older than 50, um, and, you know, beautifully articulated his position on the matter and his relationship to Malcolm and the crime. Um, and the more we spoke with him, the more time we spent with him, the more we recognize that this man is telling the truth so far as we can tell and evidence was there to back it up um, evidence that we found in the fbi records uh, evidence enough to as i said before 
get the Manhattan DA's office to take another look. But, you know, black people historically have been, you know, wrongfully convicted and uh, of crimes that they did not commit. And, and Muhammad Aziz just happened to be wrongfully convicted of one of the biggest crimes of the century. <laughs> no one seemed to care about that fact. Um, and we, we set out to tell the story of who killed Malcolm X. And at a certain point, it became more about who did it um, and why, you know, um, justice for Malcolm in many ways met justice for Muhammad Aziz. And so we're still awaiting that verdict, but um, that was the uh, surprising and, you know, very uh, satisfying outcome of the whole thing to be able to tell his story. He was very, very generous and trusting with us uh, and allowing us to tell it. It's heartbreaking because you find out that, you know, his time in prison that, you know, separated from his, his family. He himself had five children, I believe it was, when he went away. So, you know, by the time he gets out of prison, they're all grown up and having to live with the stigma that their father killed Malcolm X, which was wrong. Um, and so he's just living out his life, trying to, you know, clear his name and the legacy of his family, um, so his children can go on with their lives. Um, not, not with that, um, you know, stuck to them. And so that's kind of where we are now. Um, they're still trying to clear his name, um, but uh, there's a there's a real possibility that that we could. Fingers crossed. Well, um, I do want to discuss a little bit about the uh, the evidence that continued to build up against this individual, um, which was uh, Bradley, aka um, Mustafa Shabazz. Um, mm -hmm. And we want to uh, ask you, like, what were the challenges as the evidence continued to build against this individual for you guys? Well, one of the biggest challenges was getting anyone who knew the fact around this man's past of the true history of this man and his relationship to the crime getting anyone to admit it um in, in in north new jersey where he was living openly um and somewhat publicly uh that was a big challenge there was a there's a great deal of uh, i'll say fear and apprehension um and also uh a desire to kind of move on from the past uh, and that dark chapter. Um, so that was challenging. You know, we had evidence that we had gathered um, that indicated, you know, he was in fact who he was accused of being. But you, you, when you can't get anyone to admit to it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to prove. Uh, but ultimately. Um, things take a turn that allowed us to get additional information, additional evidence that made it, you know, certain um, in our view um, that he was, in fact, the, the shotgun assassin um, as the one admitted assassin and convicted killer, uh, Thomas Hayer, said himself uh, many, many years ago. Um, so, but it's it's always challenging if you can't get an eyewitness to tell you their version of things. You have to find other evidence to 
to support the claim. And so it's just it's a lot of hard work and research. And, and Phil, I found that part uh, probably the most fascinating is this you have this uh, individual who's kind of just, I wouldn't really say living and hiding in plain sight. He wasn't really hiding. I mean, he had created a whole new life for himself. He had opened up a gym and he even made a cameo on uh, Senator Cory Booker's campaign, uh, which was surprising to me. I'm, I'm looking at the at the uh, commercial. I said, how is this guy on here? And, and generally uh, with politics, they, they pretty much know uh, everyone who's in their commercial. So that part was surprising to me. Yeah, no question. I mean, that is, you know, it was Cory Booker's reelection campaign for mayor of Newark. Um, so it was before he became senator. Um, and he had, you know, a long fought battle just to become mayor. Uh, and it really speaks to Newark culturally and politically. It's an entrenched city that has a, a tradition of grassroots politics and, um, and dare I say, grasped and, and um, corruption in their politics. And Corey wanted no part of that. However, um, for this man to appear in his ad and for him not to know who he was or what he, who he was assumed or alleged to have been um, was was surprising to us. It seemed that Senator Booker was the only one in Newark who didn't know this man's past. Um, but it's possible, it's quite possible that his staff did this without his knowledge, uh, without acknowledging this man's full history. He was a, you know, a community leader and that may have been all the mayor knew at the time. Um, and there were those on his staff who maybe put him in that ad as a nod to the community, um, you know, kind of a wink and a nod and literally a handshake uh, of a police officer. It's irony of ironies. Um, here's Malcolm's assassin shaking hands with Newark's finest um, and nobody's saying anything about it. Uh, and. Cory Booker went on to be reelected. <laughs> and this man went on to, you know, this man went on to stay uh, a community leader. Yeah, and uh, and even kind of uh, irony. when when asked about it, uh, he he claimed to not really know this man. I, I found that part uh, interesting as well. Um, and he actually, I, he he admitted to knowing the man. Yeah, he was very very uh, full throated about. Yeah, I know him. I know him well. What he didn't know, or what he claimed not to know, was that this man was affiliated with the assassination of Malcolm X. What he claimed he didn't know was that he was the shotgun assassin. That was news to him. Um, and that's what we, you know, we go back and forth. I, I find it hard to believe that he didn't know that was the, you know, man's checkered history. Because um, everyone else knew about it. The mayor knew about it. The lieutenant governor of New Jersey, all of whom we talked to in the series, knew about it. You know, how it is the senator didn't know about it is anybody's guess. But yeah. <laughs> right. Certainly, yeah. It was probably politically expedient for him not to know about it in that moment. Mm -hmm. um, so, Phil, bringing all this together, what type of reactions did you receive after the series came out? Oh, it's been, it's been extraordinary. I mean, the series was launched on Netflix the first week in February. On the same day, it was uh, streaming. The New York Times published an article 
about not the series so much, but about the fact that we had, you know, accumulated this evidence that not only pointed to the assassin who was at the time hiding in plain sight, but we also amassed enough evidence to get the Manhattan DA's office to take a look at the wrongfully convicted assassin. And, and you know, it just snowballed from there. I mean, we had an extraordinary global reaction to this uh, series from the Guardian to, you know, the Middle East Eye was a publication that uh, caught on to the series. Um, and, and, and we, you know, we were having screens all over the country with people coming out to to learn what this story was. And um, and ultimately, um, I've never had a film have such an impact to where, um, you know, law enforcement is reconsidering uh, a case and a man's name um, could well be cleared um, and true justice uh, in this particular instance could be brought to bear because of, of the work of this series. So I, I couldn't be more proud. Okay. Um, so I do want to fast forward a little bit to our younger generations. Um, you know, our younger generations, they are very consumed with everything of what's going on in the, you know, now moment. So what kind of impact do you think this will have on the younger generation watching this now? Uh, you know, I, it's anyone's guess. Um, I think, you know, what we've learned is that there's a, a whole new generation that is being exposed to Malcolm for the first time. Um, if you came up as I did in the 90s, and you know, Malcolm X was a movie that Spike Lee was making and everyone had an X on their hat or their shirt. Or the autobiography was in wide circulation. I read it in high school and it's been with me ever since. But that was a full generation ago. So I think this series has reintroduced him to those of us as long as we've known and loved him, but um, introduced him for the first time to um, a, a younger generation who may not have known uh, fully who, who he was and what he represented. Malcolm's one of those figures that has often been misrepresented. Um, and, and we hope that we, you know, gave him the opportunity uh, to, you know, get a, a fair hearing um, and to be his true self um, and before audiences that may not have known him before. That's my hope. Um, if uh, the college campuses where we were screening this series is any indication, uh, we managed to, to do that and succeed in doing that. So, okay. I hope um, you guys can continue to promote it and introduce it to our new generation through your your efforts. Um, and Phil, if you could tell us a little bit about your upcoming project that we should be looking out for. Sure. Um, well, I'm, 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 I'm involved with two projects at the moment. Um, one is a film I'm finishing after many, many years in the making. Uh, the film about a civil rights photographer. Again, I'm revisiting that history. But through the lens of a photographer who, after his death, was uh, revealed to have been an FBI informant. Um, and uh, so that's 
similar terrain um, in that we're dealing with law enforcement and surveillance and history uh, and black history in particular and you know how it was represented or misrepresented depending on whose perspective you're getting it from. Um, uh, and then I, I'm also, I was just starting a film uh, for HBO about um, uh, the uh, history, it was really the story of black television. So it's partly historic, but it's mostly set in today's contemporary creative world um, to discuss representation on screen. Uh, that film has been furloughed for the time being because of uh, social distancing. Um, it's hard to produce a documentary and conduct an interview with, you know, five strangers in people's houses and talking within six feet is not allowable. So uh, that's on my hold for the moment. But look for that hopefully in 2022, maybe instead of 2021. Okay, we look forward to watching them. Um, how do people yeah. stay in touch? or keep up with what you're working on? Do you have a social media or website people can follow? Uh, you know, I'm on social media, uh, with Twitter and Instagram, Phil B here. That's my first name, P-H-I-L-B, the initial of my last name, A-R-H-E-R-E. -E. Um, uh, I have a website, uh, philbertelson.com, um, and also, you know, the work I do with ARC Media, you can find at ARC hyphenmedia.net. Um, those are the best avenues, I guess. Um, it's how Jordan found me. I appreciate your persistence and you guys, um, you know, have very well-informed questions. Um, and uh, it, it demonstrates that you, you not only watched the series, but you took an interest in, in what it was trying to do and say. Um, believe it or not, a lot of journalists don't even take the time to do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed by, by the work you're doing. And I appreciate the opportunity. And I, have, I just have one last question for you uh, before we let you go. Um, it, it, you can kind of just give us your opinion. Um, but what do you think was next for uh, Malcolm X? Uh, had his assassination it had not gone through or it was foiled in some fashion, Maybe, maybe that there was uh, more of an NYPD presence outside of the ballroom that day. Um, but what do you think would have been next for uh, Brother Malcolm? Well, that's a million dollar question. I mean, if I had a crystal ball, it, it, it seemed apparent that Malcolm was moving more in the direction of the mainstream civil rights movement and less um, a part of the kind of, shall we say, radical fringe. Um, and that, that, in other words, he was becoming less of a separatist and more of an integrationist. Um, you know, had he been able to live beyond his 39 years, um, had Dr. King himself been able to live beyond his 39 years, neither one of those men made it to 40, um, I think there was a good chance that they would have aligned somehow uh, because Dr. King himself was moving to the left. <laughs> Uh, closer to where Malcolm was, and Malcolm was moving to the right, if you can believe it, um, closer to where Dr. King was. It, 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 you know, it might be just a fanciful notion to think that these two giants um, would have 
been able to join forces, but all indications are that they may have. I mean, in fact, when Malcolm was assassinated uh, in the Autobahn Ballroom in 1965, they had, he had a, what you might call a daily planner where he kept notes and a schedule uh, on his person and scrawled in that um, on a day and date soon after the day he was killed was the name of and phone number of Fannie Lou Hamer. And anyone who knows Fannie Lou Hamer knows that she was part of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party that was trying to get a seat at the table during the 1964 um, convention. So she was all about voting rights, um, fearless woman. Um, and Malcolm, who had no interest in voting uh, as a member of the Nation of Islam, was now looking to be in touch with the leading advocate of voting rights for black people at that time. So it's a, it's a, a little known detail, but uh, I think an indication of the direction he was, he was headed in. If only he got to make that call to Sandy Lou, things could have been different. Wow. And uh, we just want to thank you again for taking the time to sit down yeah, with us. You. It's uh, certainly been a pleasure. The uh, miniseries, docuseries, again, it's one of the hottest miniseries right now out on Netflix. It's called Who Killed Malcolm X? Thank you, Mr. Phil Burleson, for taking the time to sit down with us today. Thank you, Jordan Rosalind. Appreciate your work.